Thank you, Dr. Pettit. A joy to be with you today. And my wife is able to be with me, Rachel, and uh, one of our nine grandchildren, kind of an early prospective student. He's only in the seventh grade. We have about 13 uh, young people, young adults from our ministry that are presently enrolled at, uh, at Bob Jones University. We praise the Lord for this institution. Would you take your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. While you're turning, let me just say I appreciate what our young people receive here when they do come to Bob Jones. We know they'll receive a consistent biblical worldview in every area of classified learning. We're glad that the truth and love will be shown. Truth will be taught and modeled in love by both professors and administration, which brings me to your twin themes for this semester, at least for one of the chapels, uh, truth and love, how well they go together. Like Dr. Pettit said, like a dual electric socket on the wall. Though you've been in the fourth chapter recently, I'm going to jump back to the second chapter of 1 John. And I'm speaking on the subject this morning, the love God hates, the love God hates. Beginning in verse 15, familiar words, through verse 17, we read, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away. I think you know that means literally is passing away. And the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. John's first epistle is, is priceless. It dwells on the theme of the love of God. But it also warns us about the love of the world. Jesus was the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was God in the flesh. You heard yesterday about the love of God manifested in his incarnation, as well as in the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross. Jesus is God, and Jesus is love personified. God is love. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, uniquely loved of his Father. And the love that God bears to his Son is the love he bears to us. Can you imagine that? Can you take that in? The devil doesn't want us to meditate on that. He wants us to think about what we're going to do 30 minutes from now or at the end of when we get turn loose for spring break. But I challenge you to just dwell on that thought. And the problem that we face is not a behavior problem. It is a love problem. We do not naturally love God. The love of God must be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That word shed abroad in the King James literally means gushed forth. So we don't naturally love God. We don't naturally love our brother. And we are deceived if we think we love God but hate our brother at the same time. Love for the brethren is a litmus test for truly knowing God and walking in the light. And John dwells on that theme throughout his first epistle here. Here's the main point today. I know some of you are really tired out with everything you've been doing. But if you don't remember anything else, I hope you remember this. If you are walking in the light and you love the brotherhood, you can't love the world at the same time. You'll be walking in darkness. 
And as John said, if you're walking in darkness, you don't know where you're going. It doesn't matter what stage of the Christian life you are at, whether you're in that stage designated by little children or the stage designated as fathers or that as young men. You and I, we don't love Jesus any more than we love his offspring. What does John mean by the world? That's important to get that established because the word world is used 23 times in this first epistle, and the vast majority of those times is used in a pejorative sense. It has been variously defined, the world as the order of things around us, the spirit of the age, the cosmos, the decoration man puts on what God has made. There are many definitions and others like these that are helpful, but could I give you the one that has helped me the most? The definition of the world, as we think about that this morning, love not the world, the love God hates. Fallen human nature acting itself out. Fallen human nature acting itself out. Now, those of you who are married and have children, probably not very many of you in this chapel, you talk about your kids just acting out. And they usually get disciplined for that. Well, what are they acting out? They're acting out their sinful nature. The same nature that was passed down to them. Same nature that you and I have. The world. It is the reign of the carnal or the fleshly mind. As as, uh, Paul said in Romans 8, it is enmity against God because it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. We're talking about the world that God forbids us to love. Not the one Jesus loved according to John 3.16. We're talking about the fallen world. So I ask you this question this morning, this will chart the course for the rest of the message. Of what does worldliness consist? Well, John tells us here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do we really understand them? Could I be honest with you and say, for I thought I did for a number of years. I was raised in a Christian home, grew up in a fundamental church, heard good expository preaching of the Word of God. I don't think I really understood what these three things meant for a long time. First of all, the lust of the flesh, that is the cravings of that fallen nature. It refers to our sin nature, not the objects of desire. May I remind you, though it hardly seems that I need to say this, it is not the physical appetites themselves that are wrong. We all hunger for food. I probably should have mentioned that right before lunchtime. I lost some of you right there. Maybe some of you rushed to class this morning and you didn't even take time for breakfast. Or it was too cold so you didn't go get the pancakes. Hunger for food, there's nothing wrong with that. That's legitimate. God created that need. They're thirst for water. The appetite for which marriage is God's beautiful satisfaction. And not just those things that we ordinarily think of, but that there's the higher tastes, the aesthetic senses which were really tickled this past weekend with the production here. Beauty for the eye. Music for the ear. None of these in themselves constitute the lust of the flesh. There's a great Scottish pastor, not as well known today as he was in his day, Robert Candlish, he wrote in 1869, he said this, Our appetites are of God, and He has made provision for their satisfaction. But they all, every one of them, may become the lust of the flesh. They may become the lust of the flesh. 
The aim of the world is to pervert them into an inordinate lust. And so what happens? The appetite for food can degenerate into gluttony and drunkenness. The desire for physical gratification becomes sensuality and uncleanness. Even the refined taste for beautiful music and beautiful art can become idols. Unholy desires may be kindled especially in our imagination, even maybe when we think we are the furthest from the world. It can truly be said, you can take us out of the world, but you can't take the world out of us. The lust of the flesh. Then there's the lust of the eyes. What are these? What is this? This is the desires that can be satisfied or offended just by sight, mere sight. And this is the one thing I was not straight on for many years. And maybe there's, I suspect some Christians here that don't have a right conception about this. Naturally, when we hear that expression, the lust of the eyes, we often think about Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says the look of lust is equal to adultery in the heart. Or maybe what comes to our minds is what the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, Solomon said in in Proverbs 23, verse 31, don't look upon the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. But I hope you remember this this morning. The eyes themselves have their own lust. And this is where envy comes in. And maybe you don't have a problem with envy, but David did. The psalmist Asaph and the psalmist David both did. They were plagued with this temptation. We find Asaph complaining in Psalm 73, verse 3, I was envious at the foolish when I saw, there it is, the eyes, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And David spoke along the same line in Psalm 37 and some vague references in Psalm 17. It was really his sinful infirmity, envying the wicked. We think of Achan, the troubler of Israel, the one who spoiled the great victory of Israel at Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. He spoiled it because he took of the spoil, the accursed thing, that goodly Babylonish garment and that wedge of gold. And those 200 shekels of silver. And when he was found out, when he was exposed and brought before Joshua, and he confessed, this is what he said, I saw, then I coveted, and I took. That's the order, isn't it? I saw, I coveted, I took. He took what some man under the curse of God had. Could I ask you a personal question? And I don't know you. Very few of you do, I know. Why do we envy the wicked when they prosper? Would we really want to trade places with them? I doubt any of you here today would say, yeah, I really do. We, we know that they're under the condemnation of a holy God. We know what their end is going to be unless they repent. And yet, for some strange reason, we grudge the worldly man's enjoyment of sin. As the psalmist, both Asaph and David said in those psalms that I mentioned, there are people who just seem to have more than heart could wish. Their portion is in this life, yes, but they have everything. They, they're living the American dream. They, they have their children around them, their grandchildren. They enjoy good health. They have a great retirement program. They're full of children, as, Paul, as, as 
as the psalmist said in, in Psalm 17. They have no financial worries. A relatively painless death. And they pass on a huge inheritance to their family. And you know what? If we're not careful, our eyes are pained to see the giddy man or woman so happy and so secure. May God help us to escape that. We envy the person, whoever it was, who lives, lived up in the state of Maine, I guess still does, and won that second largest lottery prize recently, over a billion dollars, of which even after taxes, he or she will get 700,000 or more. Who can't help but think, must be nice, huh? It really? Would it be nice to have that money? Much of which should have been going into buying children's food and putting it on the table, but a gambling addict couldn't discipline himself. You see, our physical eyes blind us to the eyes of our soul and our conscience. Sometimes we think millions of dollars would make us happy instead of adopting the attitude of a man named Agur, as recorded by Solomon in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. That's a good prayer to have to the Lord. Feed me with food convenient for me, literally, that is my portion. Lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and take the name of my God in vain. It's not about us. It's about what brings joy and honor to God. You often heard the expression, If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Could I tweak that a little bit? If God isn't happy, neither should we be. He knows best what I really need. So there's the pride of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, but then there's the pride of life. That's what's in the world. That is boasting of what we have or do. It is pride in possessions. It is pride in attainment. At first glance, those first two ingredients would render this third one superfluous. Self-indulgence, that's the lust of the flesh. Self or grudging envy is the lust of the eyes. That might seem to comprehend all that is really in the world, but you know what? Our sin natures are so vain that not only the substance, but the show, the semblance, the shadow appeals to us. And oh, to what lengths we will go to keep up appearances, even if we have to use falsehood. Now, I'm from North Carolina and have been for a good while now, so you'll have to excuse me for referring to Andy Griffith, okay? I won't ask how many of you still watch Andy Griffith, but I know there have to be some aficionados here. In one of the early episodes... Floyd, the barber in Mayberry, he joins a Lonely Hearts Correspondence Club. They didn't have, uh, you know, Internet chat rooms for singles. So he joins this Lonely Hearts Correspondence Club, and he rep- represents himself as a wealthy businessman to imp- impress a rich widow that he's been corresponding with. And she's going to pass through Mayberry, and he's all in a dither. What am I going to do? I, 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 I can't let this woman think I'm as poor as I really am. So he gets Andy to go along with his scheme. They borrow a big, wealthy home where the owners are away on vacation. 
And uh, Aunt B becomes the maid. And Andy and Opie are the sons, even though there's a huge disparity. The way they explain that is hilarious in itself. And it turns out that this rich widow is a fraud, too. She drives up in a swanky convertible, rented, of course. She's a real gold digger. But the ego trips of both of them come to a screeching halt when she threatens to stay for a week, and they know those people that own the home are going to be back in just a day or two. It's hilarious, but it just illustrates a serious point. The pride of life that seeks to impress has not changed much since 1962. The pride of life. It it makes us mean as we claw and race to the top and often disguise it with a little diplomacy. The pride of life debases our consciences and destroys the truer, finer instincts that even some unsaved people have some of the time. The pride of life gets us caught up in playing that one-up game. We have to outshine others. So when we're sitting around cutting jokes, we've got to tell one that's a little bit funnier than the one before us. And sometimes it gets more serious. We're sharing prayer requests and testimonies, and we have to share one that is a little bit more spiritual or dramatic. This pride of life, it's the last idol to fall in our hearts. The lust of the flesh may be greatly weakened by being mortified, crucified, nailed to the cross through the whole power of the Holy Spirit. The lust of the eyes may be overcome. What do you think overcomes the lust of the eyes? Love. Love envieth not, we read in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the fulfilling of the law. If you really love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. You're, you're, you're not going to kill him. You're not going to covet anything or anyone he has. We may even get past, to a certain extent, that lust of the eyes. And yet pride still clings to us. It runs in our blood. It dogs our footsteps. I ask you this morning, are you alive and touchy to the world's opinion? Do you have to have its approval? Do you fear its frown? Or are you able to say with that great missionary to India, spent 52 years without a furlough, Amy Carmichael, dead to the world and its applause, to all its customs, fashion, laws, of those who hate the humbling cross, so dead that no desire may rise to appear great or good or wise in any but my Savior's eyes. Oh, that we could say that. I can't say that yet. I'm too touchy about my reputation. I haven't gotten to the place that I can say with the Apostle Paul, I know some people reckon me the filth and off-scouring of all things, but that doesn't bother me. I count all things but loss for the glory of Jesus Christ. What then is the cure for this contagion of worldliness? It's a dreadful one. Would you say that it's anti-worldliness? 
Would you say that it's that we adopt the attitude very stoically, I'm just going to close my eyes and bite my tongue and grit my teeth and take the low place and just suck it up and steel myself against a worldly attitude or any overture? That won't work. Plenty of people have tried that. It doesn't work. The answer is not anti-worldliness. The answer is otherworldliness. Being enamored with something else, or should I say, someone else. We all know that beautiful song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. One of my heroes has been dead for 250 years. You know, it's safe to choose a hero that's already run his course and finished strong and, and has died. David Brainerd just fits that category. Single missionary to the Native Americans, only lived to be 29. What God did through him is unbelievable, can only be explained by the Holy Spirit coming down in a place called Cross Weeks on New Jersey. But before that ever happened, when he was not very much older than most of you here today, single, stalked by tuberculosis and is ravaging his body, he wrote in his journal the following poem. I hope we can say this. Farewell, vain world, my soul can bid you adieu. My Savior taught me to abandon you. Your charms may gratify a sensual mind, but cannot please a soul for God design. Forbear to entice. Cease then my soul to call. Tis fixed through grace. My God shall be my all. Let's not think of some of the world, let's think of the world as something outside of us that just tries to get in. No, we need to be concerned about what's inside of us. And then the love of the Father can grip our hearts through the Holy Spirit, shall we pray. Father, would you help us not to peacefully coexist with the world? Help us to love the world that Jesus died for. But please deliver us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life in all of its subtle forms. Lord, if something speaks to us, tempts us, grips us, and it's not of you, may there be no room in our hearts for this we pray fervently in Jesus' name. Amen.